0: i
1: <laughs> i I'm John, a real alcoholic. God, I got that said. You know, I say I'm a real alcoholic because I I can't safely drink. It took me a long time to find out about that. Also, I say I'm a real alcoholic because alcohol did everything for me that I wanted to wanted done. And uh, I was afraid of those pills. I got those for other people. So when I came to this program, I only had to fight this one withdrawal, and that was alcohol. You know, uh, day before yesterday, I was talking to St. Peter and I asked him about going upstairs up there, you know, if there's any AA meetings up there, because I'm getting pretty damn used to going to these AA meetings. Didn't want to get lonesome, and he said he didn't know. He'd check on it. So last night, I saw him again, and I asked him, uh, you know, how things are up there? And he said, oh, i got good news and bad news. He says, uh, there's lots of big meetings up there. He said, you know that little thing they had at Montreal? He says, oh, that's a little compared to what we have up here. He said, oh, Bill's there, Dr. Bob, and all the people are there. He said, that's the good news. The bad news is you're going to be the speaker next Friday night. <laughs> so here I am. <clears throat> you know, Carolyn called our house about six weeks ago, and, uh, I wasn't home yet, and talked to my wife Nita, and and told her what she wanted, and uh, uh, she spent spent since the last six weeks doing all the worrying for me. So I'd like to introduce my warrior here, wherever she is, Nita. <laughs> so that that saves that for me, and uh, I have a my youngest daughter here tonight, Amy. Would you like to stand? <clears throat> and my youngest son, George. I'll say a little bit about George right quick before I forget it, but, you know, every I think God has sent everyone a little guardian angel, and uh, George is my guardian angel for about 12 or 15 years. He rode around with me in that old pickup, and sometimes he drove me home, and, uh, you know, it's later in my story, uh, you know, when we get around to getting here, uh, we think of the uh, things that happened, you know, I, I think about that, and uh, I mean, maybe that was one of George's purposes in this world, but. Uh, I invited a lot of people to come here tonight. I'm glad you all came. <laughs> One of them said I threatened you a little bit, but uh, I told him I wanted him to be here because I wanted to say how sweet it is, and he likes to hear that. And that's what it is, you know. This this whole program is a, is a chance to completely start over a new life. You know, it's kind of ironic that tonight is a Good Friday. And for Christians, this is the end of a situation that started a complete new life. It, it's new hope. And, you know, that's what really what this program, this is what has happened to me. And I hope that uh, I can share that with you tonight, and I hope we can enjoy uh, going through the trudging on both sides of the, of the uh, line. You know, every alcoholic has to start someplace, and I started out in City of Ocarchi in 1932, October 29th, and things were pretty rough back then, they told me. But it seems like alcohol played a great part in my coming to this world. Uh, most of the town got drunk. My dad had celebrated, and he was a businessman there, and uh, uh, everybody was celebrating my arrival. So, uh, you know, I tried to help them sup- celebrate that for about 48 years, and it took took me a long time to decide that uh, you know that I couldn't safely drink. But I was the oldest of 10 children, and and I grew up with uh, like a lot of these people talk about here. I think we all have the same feelings where. Uh, on the outside, we looked like we got everything going together, and the inside, we're scared and immature and don't know what's going on and uh, just trying to get ahead. Alcohol started in my life real early. We had uh, homebrew and homemade wine in the house, and I think I uh, was oh, three to five years old. I remember uh, drinking, and I remember what it did, but I remember the first time I got a bottle of a beer out of my grandfather's birthday and drank the whole bottle and went in the back room and went to sleep. And my folks went on home, and they had to come back and get me. They had to come and find me, you know. So alcohol did, uh, I I liked alcohol, and I liked the feeling I got real early in life. So that was to carry me through a lot of years of trying to, to live that life, of enjoying life, you know. Everything, uh, where, the way I was raised that you celebrated, and when people came over, you drank. Drinking was just a part of life. So uh, I saw the the people that had to pay the price for drinking, you know, they got sick and arguments and all those things that went on, but you know, I thought that was just things that went along with it. We had you had to learn to pay the price. So uh that was kind of the background that I was raised in. Uh it was a good as everyone says, good Christian home. Uh went to Catholic school twelve years and daily mass a lot and mass server, you know, did all those things. But uh Somewhere, you know, I was always real young from in, in where I was put for my age. Uh, I got out of high school when I was 17, and by then I'd uh, had a lot of drinking problems. Uh, beer was a was a daily thing in high school for me. On weekends, it was uh, getting a pint of whiskey and going out to a dance someplace and, and living with the big guys. This was in the 48 to 50 when there were a lot of GIs around, and and you know, the... No one seemed to care You know, we just did kind of what we wanted to And we were trying to live like the big people did And at least I was And a lot of my friends were But a lot of those people could do the, Could drink and uh, go on home And for me, I never could guarantee what was going to happen Uh I still, there's some uh, One bad wreck, you know uh, These things started happening that I had to look back upon and wonder why God had kind of saved me all through all this stuff Uh I went started college in Stillwater in 1950, and, and this was the start of the Korean War. And, you know, I'd, I really, going to college was kind of a last-minute deal. I was going to go to some business school and be a partner with my dad in a grocery store and just have an easy life, you know. That way, I wouldn't have to make any decisions, but uh, the Korean War kind of made that decision for me to go to college. And I had an uncle that was to play an important part in my life. He, uh, he worked out the stockyards. And encouraged me to go to veterinary school. And this school was just starting, so, you know, being an alcoholic, I figured you aim high and give it a try. So I went over there, but, you know, I went along with some of my drinking buddies. And the first semester, we were the old Carchi Terrors, and we thought we had to show all those Yankees how to drink. And, you know, grades weren't very good. And, and uh, after that first semester, I knew that if I was going to have to change my ways, if I was going to get in this veterinary school. And so I uh, went into a more... For the next year and a half, went into a real uh, strict regimentation of studying. I decided I really wanted this. It was something that very few people could get, and, and I was willing to pay the price. I even the second year lived by myself in a little apartment, locked myself up, and I just studied day and night. Now, that sounds real good, except on Friday at noon, I got hitchhiked and went back to Okarchie to the bar, and I worked at that bar set Friday night. Oh, I was real good at that, shining that old bar. I've been to Okarchie. It's that old antique bar there. And I'd drink that beer to catch up for all week. And, oh, well, I was a good bar shiner, you know. And all day Saturday, I'd get to work in there, Saturday night. and We'd lock that thing up at about midnight. And then the guys would were around, there's a, a dance place out, or there's some place to go and continue drinking. But that time, we were, it was on to the whiskey. So I spent this these times uh, catching up. And uh, I didn't have a car. You know, that might have saved my life. I would hitchhike back and forth to school or get a ride to somebody but uh alcohol was a problem uh especially with my getting along with myself you know during that time some of my buddies one of my first cousins got killed in in korea and they brought him home you know and during world war ii i'd kind of look down upon draft dodgers quote and uh god here i was being one of those uh, i you know i couldn't i had to drink to put up with myself in other words yet i was doing what everybody else was doing i was going to school and telling myself I'll go to the Army when I get out, you know, if I have to. But uh, so there were conflicts, and uh, I was accepted into veterinary school, and, you know, that's another story that just a lot of little things happened, but I got in, and here again, it was, at this time in my life, I was uh, I was going to Mass daily because I really needed God. You know, I was praying, humbly praying to get, to help me, you know, and God was doing this. He carried me right on through these things. I got into veterinary school, and then it was kind of a letdown. You know, I'd made that one hurdle that I'd challenged myself to. So the first semester, I kind of laid off, you know, caught up on my drinking a little more, and I met a guy that had a car, and he and I were real good buddies, and he'd take me home on Fridays, and I got to where, going back to school, would didn't happen until Monday morning, and the first semester in veterinary school, I was put on probation. And it was back to the old drawing board for John, you know. So I had to go back to locking myself up and confining myself to these studies, and 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 trying to drink enough on, on those weekends to to survive. And finally, uh, junior year, I got an old car. Old car is a brand new car. Here I hadn't had a car all these four years. I was twenty-one, and my dad got me uh, a new little Chevrolet. And of course, I had to proceed to show everybody in town that I had the fastest car, and and uh, really, you know, I, I really just demolished that little thing. Uh, i don't like to get too far along but you know christmas was always a bad time for me because it brought back old memories of earlier christmases we had big christmases at our house with 10 kids you might say and every year it was always the same thing you, you can't have anything this year because things are pretty rough and we're not going to have any toys everybody can have one thing or something but anyway uh, christmases then would i don't know it's just a bad time for me for feelings and I'd get lonely and upset, and you know and alcohol, and it was too much there was too much drinking around, so on these Christmases, I got into trouble, but one one Christmas night I'd been on a couple of days of drinking, and anyway, I roared into town and there was a lice, and they had a Christmas tree right in the main street of town, and next thing I knew I'd hit that Christmas tree and demolish the lights, you know and here was my brand new car you know here i I'd, I'd walked for all those years, and i I couldn't explain these things, you know. But you know that that wasn't the end of that. I started drinking with some guys that helped me out, and that next morning I woke up, I'm walking down Northwest Highway uh, out on the road when I came to. and it scared me. you know I don't, I don't remember having blackouts before. I remember sleeping a lot, but this time I didn't know you know what had happened really. And then I remembered that car and the Christmas tree and all this, and I got me hitched like a ride back, and as we went into Oakarcha, I looked over to a restaurant over there, and there was my car parked around behind that. So I ran and got in it, you know, and the front wheel was just all messed up, and I drove on home. But this was the beginning of, of a, a life that really got to be hell on earth, you know, trying, trying to have a lot of fun, trying just to be one of the guys, just trying to, to enjoy life and, and to put up with all these pressures, yet uh, not getting in trouble. That summer, I'd, I went to Minnesota. I couldn't, you know, alcohol was already telling me what I had to do in my life. I couldn't get a job with a practitioner in the state of Oklahoma for two reasons. One, was I was single. And two, uh, I don't know if they all knew about my drinking or not, but nobody wanted me to work around. So I got a job in Minnesota with the government, going up, went all the way up there to test, banks, test cattle. And, you know, I knew that I, this government job, I was going to have to stay out of trouble. These people weren't going to put up with me like I'd been used to at home. You know, I always had... Enablers, my dad and other people, that, you know, would keep me out of trouble. So I got up in Minnesota. In the first month, I got up by all right. But Fourth of July night, I'd been in Minneapolis and, and heading back. You know, I I bought a pint. It's first whiskey I'd had. Sure enough, I got drunk, got to work late, and things. You know, they could have sent me back home for that, but uh, they didn't. So that was the beginning of the luck. But I finally got out of new school. This is, we're going to have to move on fast here because of, and a lot of things happen afterwards. But what I'm, You know, the problems were all there, and I was having a lot of bad luck. And I got out of veterinary school the same way. Alcohol told me the same thing. I couldn't have a job. And this same uncle that had uh, encouraged me to go to veterinary school was working at the stockyard, so he got me a job with a friend there because I had to go to the Army. I had a commission, but they didn't want me at that time. So I spent from June until February in Oklahoma City working at the stockyards, you know. And a, a, another, a lot of, a lot of, uh, Strain and pressure and, you know, I'm I'm living on my own away from home except I went home every weekend. Stayed at home, slept in the house, ate the mother's food and went back to my old apartment during the week and, you know, and just trying to survive. And I could, I was making more money I'd ever made in my life, but I couldn't pay my bills. I was still paying on this old car that I'd wrecked three times and was still trying to keep it running. But, uh, that summer I even had to buy a new car and that car wasn't two years old. And I'd completely tore it up. So, uh... I finally got in the army. They called me and I thought, well, you know, this now I've got to straighten out. I've been I've been straightening myself out now about ten times, but I, I just keep getting into those bad situations. But I got in the army and they sent me to Chicago and well, this was just turning uh, alcoholic loose in, in heaven. This first time I had a lot of money of my own and and a lot of freedom and nobody around. And so I got into trouble in Chicago. They sent me to Saint Paul, Minnesota, and it take all night to tell you the trouble I got into there. Paul here's first about waking up on side of the railroad track when a train comes by and another blackout, you know. So I was really to the point of desperation then. So, I, you know, I, I'd signed up to go overseas if, if there was a job available since I was single and they gave me orders to go overseas. But me and I had been talking about getting married in, in, that, in the fall, and so we kind of changed the date and got married in August so we, she could go overseas with me. So, you know, getting overseas, we thought, I thought, I can really start over here now, married now, you know, that ought to help. But that uh, didn't help my drinking. You know, I'd go down to the officers' club. All I was going to do is have a few beers with a chaplain, and I'd sit there and talk with him. You know, and the next thing you know, I'd have to push my old bicycle home. I couldn't even walk, and he'd say, uh, "Who are you with? You know, what are you doing?" Well, next week I'm going to do it better. You know, I'd ride that old bicycle up there and push it back. You know, so I had, you know, but and and at that point in my life, I was serving mass every day with this chaplain, trying to trying to keep myself straight. But I I had uh, still. I still had the ability to start over again, to get right with God and, and to uh, feel like that I could control this thing. Well, we got out of the Army, and I have stayed in the Army because I didn't have a job except uh, my. Uh, I had to get out of there and get me out, because things were getting pretty rough. So uh, I came home and started a practice in the big arena, and that's where I first met Gilbert. Uh, I started out with a big mortgage, and uh, by that time we had uh, two... Where well, we had another baby right after we got home, There were two kids, and pretty soon there were three. And we were living in an apartment above my clinic, and man, I was working day and night and doing what I really wanted to do. And I would—I'll have to say that I was the best at what I did. You know, I was a very successful veterinarian that that started out by himself and in a practice. And, and it, of course, times were right. Somebody else left town, but I had a lot more practice than I could take care of. But I tried to take care of all of it. And here, I—I I had to—I uh, started using alcohol, not as not as frequently, but I still needed to reward myself, and I still needed, when I was so tired, I still needed some rest, so I was kind of in a period of lull uh, as far as getting in trouble, but then came the time that I had two and three partners, and uh, I had more time to to get off and and to be the important person I wanted to be, you know, some people came up and asked me to go on the city council, of course, I joined the clubs around there to be one of the people in town, and uh my downfall, or part of my downfall, was the egomaniac alcoholic was getting on the city council, you know. Uh, now they televise it. I'm glad they didn't televise it then, but I'd have to read the paper the next day to find out what the hell I'd said, you know. I'd get up there. <laughs> I had to have a few drinks to get brave enough, and I was tired, so then by the time I got it to run in that city, well, they thought they were in trouble then. But, but anyway, uh, they were doing a lot of good things. They built a new jail, and uh addition on the hospital, and I'll tell you this, because this kind of points out how crazy I was. I had been uh, elected by my peers as a vice mayor. And all that meant so that I, w- I took care of the meeting when the mayor wasn't there. But also, they said that I was in charge of atomic attacks. If there was an attack, I was in charge of that, of getting everybody out of town.
0: <laughs> <laughs> now, I
1: live north of El Reno, about four miles. And from my house, I'm on a hill. You can see the whole city of El out there. And when I was in my glory, I always think of like a little Nero. I would look over my city down there, and I'd say, look at all my responsibility, you
0: know.
1: <laughs> and, uh, you know, here I am in charge of this whole thing in case there's atomic attack. And then I realized I didn't know what the hell to do if there was one, you <laughs> know. But I was in, for, for an alcoholic, you know, I had, I had a new home. I had five children at that time, and I had everything that I'd ever dreamed about. When I was in college, you know, somebody would say, what do you want? And I'd say, a million dollars, Cadillac car, sailboat, and a blonde. And hell, you know, I had all those things, but I was getting more miserable by the the day. You know, life was terrible. Uh, In 1973, I was still on city council when this happened, but this was the start of the downfall that finally brought me to this program. I had a head-on crash out on a call, but the problem was I wasn't supposed to be on call. I'd been drinking all the evening before and all that day, and I got out to no man's land in a blackout and hit a car head-on, and and, uh, of course... I was arrested and taken in, and had a number and fingerprints and all those things and of course, I just still knew that my you know i could I could handle this. I had friends, and they wouldn't going to do this to me, but they were doing it to me and the bail was put up, and nothing got put in the newspaper the first day, and the newspaper in Arlene likes to have the news, so they want to know why there wasn't any charges filed, and pretty soon there was. We had a new district attorney, and I didn't think they decided to make an example out of me and they filed everything they could file, and it was a year of probation, and McAllister was the next stop, and they got my attention a little bit because I was going to try to change my ways again. I didn't want to go to McAllister, but, you know, even in that year, they sent me to ASAP school here in the city, and they told me if I could keep my record clean, not get in any trouble, and they'd erase this little thing so it wouldn't be on my record. This was a new program, and, you know, I sat in in that program next to a guy and asked him, uh, you know, why he was there, and he told me what happened to him anyway. He said they sent him to AA, too. And I said, well, I must not be as bad as him. They haven't sent me to AA, you know. So here in 1973, I missed an opportunity, possibly. I don't know. But I wasn't even listening to those people. On the way home, I'd stop and get me a six-pack because I was working hard. But in 1977, I'd had all the stress and strength of that practice. I could stand, and I'd been wanting to get out. Didn't know how. And one night, it looked like two of my partners were going to leave before I could. So I packed up all my things and left. And here I gave up one of the most important things that I'd worked for all my life, 18 years of practice and everything, and I sold out cheap, and I just left. But here, alcohol had, had reduced me to where I was uh, having the shakes. I'd have to drink to, uh, to get along, and I wouldn't do things because I was drinking, and hell, I was just running in circles. So uh, I was 45 years old, retired, two kids in college, and you know I had no plans on how I was going to support myself, and these were the nights when I lay there in those cold sweats, And I just knew the only way out of this thing was to die, and I'd I'd already had some uh, close calls, and I was to have some more. Uh, Through about 10 months of that, I ended up getting in jail, in the jail that I'd built, you know. And the city police were a little nice to me. They didn't take me over to county, but the man told me there that they'd had all of me they wanted. And the city police had been nice to me, like a lot of people here have said, you know. They used to stop me to let me know that they knew, but then they'd say, you're on your way home, you better get home. But this time they didn't. So I ended up back in their jail and I'd been to jail in here in Oklahoma City when I was nineteen and uh, so I can have a little uh, consideration for things that happened to other other people today, you know because I understand that you know I, didn't, I couldn't feel guilty about that wreck and about those things because hell I didn't intend to get in no shape. I was just trying to get along in this world uh through all this uh, in those years uh George was driving me around in that pickup? Uh, riding with me some then but yet but 1978 I finally got a job and here God was beginning to line things up for my recovery. He gave me a job with federal government as a federal meat inspector working here in Oklahoma City at packing plants. This would keep me from drinking from the time I went to work at 6 in the morning until I got off at 2 or 3 in the afternoon. But they were working me hard and mentally I was all messed up and and I had to drink more in the evenings to make up for it and uh, uh, oh, I'd been there about two months, I guess, and I had a, some kind of a hemorrhage that just wouldn't quit. And I laid there in that packing plant from 9 in the morning to 2 in the afternoon, blood running. I'd swallowing the blood. I couldn't get the, the, the nosebleed I thought it was, but I think it was a lot deeper than that because it wasn't coming out my nose. It was coming out my mouth. But anyway, at that point in my life, I lay there, you know, and I, I said, well, you're either going to live or you're going to die, and I really didn't care. So I, I just laid there till I quit bleeding because of lack of blood. There was blood everywhere around that place, and I'd swallowed a lot of it. But when I left that place, I was too weak to hardly drive, but I drove toward home, and I made it to that liquor store and got me a pint, and I just, I just had to have a drink. Yet I knew that the alcohol had caused all this. I'd had hemorrhages around the eyes. And, you know, they say this is a, a, a physical disease, and I'd had a lot of symptoms of the physical disease, but I was to go on a couple more years before the mental disease and the spiritual disease would get me down. But through this period in this time, I'd given up this God. You know, I was doing so well on my own that I didn't need God. And I'd given up trying to get my life straightened up again. Hell, I'd, I'd go and try to talk to a priest about my problem, and, and in the first place, I wasn't willing to give up the problem. And it's you know, you finally just get to where you you can't fight that anymore, so you just quit talking to God if you don't want to hear about it. So uh, in '79, uh, my wife Nita had had all she could stand with her problems and had gone to see a, a lady friend of hers who took her to AA. And A had been in our house one time before on a Sunday, and these people said, Maybe you ought to stay here and listen to us. She had called them, and I said, No, no, I'm taking care of the kids. I don't want to hear them. I want them to see this, you know. So I took the kids and left. But anyway, at this time, uh, I really decided to, to work this program and to straighten her life up. And this was really the downfall of me. You know, I, I'd uh, she was my enabler in a way, and, and my drinking friend, and all this, and we kind of held each other up for years. But, uh, Things got rough at our house. She'd go to his AA meetings and then she'd come home and start giving me hell. Most time I was hiding, watching where she'd been and, and you know, and getting home before she did, and then trying to But anyway, uh I got tired of this AA bunch. Hell I ruined my life, you know. So I got me a big sheet one night when I was drunk while she's at this meeting and made this big sign, home record. Wrote it on there, you know. Now I'm gonna put this on that AA door, but I was too drunk that night. So uh when I <laughs> When she came home I told her about this and she said, You better not go up there, there's some big guys up there And then there were. But I had to uh, I had to tell the group about that the first night I went back to El Reno to a meeting after other things had happened because uh, I, I I had to do that so I would feel at home with them. But uh in January nineteen eighty Nita had had all that she could stand and she got five kids together and they were in a doctor's office, in Oklahoma City, and they had one of these things called intervention all lined up, and only I didn't know about it. And I appeared in the in the office there to sign some health papers for a boy and health papers, that uh, uh, insurance papers. <laughs> anyway, at this at this great meeting, uh, they'd all been coached what to do and how to say it, and the the kids all told me of some fact that happened in their lives that you know when I was drinking, how my drinking it affect them. You know, even back on that in that wreck thing that. That just about, you know, if I could have died, I'd like to die then because I knew these kids had to go back to school and knew they had to go visit their friends. And I had to go back to my practice and face people, you know. God is when you are a public drunk, and they've had your picture in the paper and all these things. And, you know, I, the mental strain, nobody knows when alcoholic goes through and survives. The only way I could survive was just keep drinking. But uh, after, after this intervention thing, uh, I tried to make up excuses. You know, I, I haven't got time, but they had my boss there. Uh, he said, yeah, you got time. I said, well, I'm not ready. Yeah, we got a suitcase packed and, and we got a ticket for you. Well, a lot of alcoholics, you know, with five kids and, the, and their job and everything, you know, would have said, yeah, I'll be glad to go, And but not this alcoholic. You know, I didn't have time to think, and, and I didn't have time. I didn't know anything about treatment. I didn't know anything about anything. All I knew was I was needing to drink real bad, and they, I hadn't had one yet that day, and I was, I just had to get the hell out of there. So I got up and walked out. And here again, I was giving up everything in my life you know, my family and my wife and my other job. And, you know, I was one step from Skid Row at that point in my life. And I didn't know what I was going to do, but, you know, I did, I couldn't go back. You know, I'm a, I am even made a, the the bad mistake of telling them that, uh, you know, I'd quit drinking for a year just to show them I didn't need to go to any treatment place. Well, let me tell you, that started me on 30 days of misery because I didn't drink for 30 days. And for an alcoholic, they drank a lot every day. And I... I I I don't like, you know, a lot is a lot for different people, but for me, it was all I could get without overdosing, and here I was, not going to drink for 30 days, so I just, all I could do was go to work, come home, sit there and watch TV, eat, go to bed, get up, go to work, and I couldn't even drive through town. You know, how in the hell do you live like that? That's not giving an alcoholic an option, so I knew that I couldn't live sober, I thought. But after that deal, uh, it took a while, uh, four or five days, everybody came back home, we're all going to start over again, but. You know, I was in a tailspin then. It was not going to stop till June the 21st, 1980. And that was the last Saturday night of uh, that I ended up in my old trailer house out of Pond all by myself after about three days of drinking. That morning, I'd gone to Okarchi to buy that last bottle. I didn't know it would be my last bottle, but I only bought one. I always bought, you know, weekends, you have to have three or six. But that morning, I only bought one. And the poor lady that <clears throat> sold me that bottle was a relative she looked at me, and I'd been out in that old trailer house for two nights, and I, what I was doing, just drinking and passing out and getting up and driving around and drinking some more and then going back there to pass out, and and I, I what I didn't know was I was preparing myself for the for the end. But that lady said, "John, where in the world have you been?" And I said, "I've been out farming, you know." <laughs> I had dirt all ol' man, like, oh! But I, I went ahead and, 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 and nursed that bottle that day, I guess, because all I remember is. Later that night, I just had, I had mentally all I could stand. Spiritually, there wasn't anything left in my world. And you know, this is ironic that it was on my son's 21st birthday that this happened. And when he was about four or five weeks old, he got real sick. And the doctors told us that about five o'clock that evening, he was going to die. There was nothing they could do for him. And about six, well, another three hours went by and the little baby didn't die. And I was praying to that God that I knew then real hard. And I, you know, I told him that I, uh, whatever, but I sure needed this boy to, or I I just couldn't go on with, with all this work and all these things. I, in fact, uh, I guess I threatened God I might even have to go back in the army and just quit what I was doing. But for some reason, they called the specialist who came over there, and this baby had been overdosed on drugs that they were giving him for, di- for diarrhea. And he was in a coma and, and barely breathing a little oxygen. But God gave us that boy back. And I not you know, and it was a miracle. I know it was a miracle. Yet, 21 years later, here I am, from all the faith that I'd had at that point, here I was with no faith, in total depression, willing to take my life, and I'd had everything with me to do it. I had a, a syringe and a drug we used to do away with dogs I knew worked. I'd put a lot of dogs to sleep, and it was a painless thing, and I would try. I even had to figure out in my own little mind how I was going to do this and still collect the uh, insurance I thought, you know, thought it'd work. But I got this stuff out, and I went out and picked up and got it out. And it was at that point that something happened. And I, you know, this is where God said, John, this is going to be your last chance. If you want to do it, you better do it. But I looked up and I, I you know, I, I said, you know, this is going to be the last time. This will be the end. So I said, you know, that, I think there's a prayer that every alcoholic must know or it wouldn't be ignited. It's God help me. I didn't want to kill myself. I didn't know any other way out. And then I was afraid I was going to, and I knew I was going to. And I didn't know what I couldn't help myself. But for some reason, I put that stuff away and ran in that old trailer and went to sleep. But that started the surrender that ended up with me being here tonight. Because I knew then that I had to go someplace because I was crazy. Most people just don't go around wanting to kill themselves. So on Sunday, I got me a six-pack of Michelobis. I was really sick after that last week of drinking. And I, I drank that for medicine. And I made my good resolution that I was going to do something Monday morning I didn't know what to do. I didn't know this doctor's name. I did not know who to call anywhere. I'd gone back to work, so I looked in the yellow pages under alcoholic, and I saw this number. And I'm so nervous and foggy by then. I just dial this number, and it's an 800 number. And I get California. It's the care unit headquarters in California. And that's the number they used to have in the in the yellow pages in Berkeley. But a little lady there said, "Hold on," and she hooked me up with a gal at St. Anthony's Hospital. And I told them well, what had happened and everything. I, I said I got to go someplace, and they said, "Well." Can when can you come? I said I can't come to Friday night. She said, Well, you know, you call me every day and we'll keep you a bed. That Monday when I got home, I stopped at the Seven Eleven store and I went in and I was still I was sicker than hell. But I knew I didn't know what to buy. I looked at one can of beer and it wasn't enough. I looked at a six pack and I knew if I drank that, I'd go get some whiskey. And I got me a quart of Budweiser. I left it in the sack, went out to my farm and sat on the hill. I looked at the sun going down and I drank that quart of Budweiser. That was the last drink I've ever had. I threw the bottle down and went on back to work. And that Friday, I walked into the St. Anthony Hospital. You know, I still have the last fifth of Jim Beam, the empty bottle that I picked up out that old trailer house that I found. And I still have that bottle of medicine. I'll tell you a little more about that bottle of medicine than I was going to use on myself. But I have those things today because I don't want to remind myself of what it took. But I went to that hospital, and I stood there that Friday evening. On you know, Thursday, I told my wife I was going to go to this hospital, and she didn't believe it. And I had my suitcase packed, but hell, she'd heard that before. But I, I knew I had to. I was going to die. So I stood at that front door. And how it works says we stood at the turning point. And, uh, you know, I had no idea what they'd do with an alcoholic except lock you up. But I knew I had to do something or die. So I walked in there, and I just gave myself up, you know. And then the miracles started happening to all the people in my life. A lot of them some of them here tonight, and there's a lot of others that have been helping me in the last coming on six years. On that Saturday, that was on a Friday night, <clears throat> one thing happened there that a lady told me that uh, there was daily mass over at the hospital. And I, you know, I put that back in my little mind. So Saturday morning or Saturday afternoon, I ran over there. You know, I still stopped by that hospital because in, in that chapel is a big circle in the middle. And that Saturday afternoon, I think I looked right through that circle when I told God, you know, somebody's got to help me here. And, I, you know, I really thanked him for being there because I felt good that night. The first night I got there, I talked to somebody and I told him about myself. And his name was Jack. And Jack's still a good friend of mine. He's around here and his daughter's here tonight, but I um, haven't seen. But, you know, all these people, you know, finally you talk to somebody. Somebody that knew something about you. I mean, about what was wrong with you. I thought I was the only one. You know, I used to worry about my license and about malpractice when I was out there. How I treated things, and I used to wake up next morning and remember I'd been someplace and wonder what I'd done. I, if I didn't make a ticket out, I didn't know what I'd done, you know. And uh, I just knew that somebody was going to knock on the door or call me up and say, come in. And the funniest thing is today, is about three months ago, that I was appointed to the Impaired Veterinarians Commit- Committee of the State of Oklahoma. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, this this tells... Tells me of what the miracles that can happen. Here's the thing I was most afraid of that was going to happen to me. Uh, I have an opportunity today to help other people. I hope it'll be helpful. But I had to go on through that in that treatment thing. I wanted to. <clears> on <throat> Saturday, my daughter brought a, some clothes by for me, and they took my pickup, so I wouldn't leave. And I told them to come and get it because I didn't want to be looking out there. But she brought me a little, a little uh, card that had a little saying on it about when a man's at the end of his rope. He'll allow God to help him tie a knot so he won't slip off. And it was that morning or the morning after that a friend of mine, Marion W. who is here tonight, came in and he was there a lot of mornings for me. But that morning when I was feeling so low and I'd read this thing and I don't know how the situation came up, but I'd tell tell Marion, hell, I'm at the end of my rope, you know, and all this. And he says, well, you just tie a knot and hang on so you don't slip off. And I looked up and Marion had a gold chain around his neck and he had a knot in it. And i said well, what's that not for and he said that's so i remember not to slip off i said my god that makes sense to me so i ran across the street and got me a gold chain over in the gift shop one of those kind that guaranteed to make your neck green <laughs> and i tied a knot in it and i wore it to my first a birthday and i you know i was willing to do anything that i thought might remi- remind my little sick mind of where i'd been and what had happened because you know this is a mental disease and. I remember all the times that you know, alcoholic. A lot of times it wouldn't be 24 hours; it'd be 12 hours, it'd be three hours. After all those good resolutions, you know, and and being all the misery of the world, and say, "I'm never going to drink again. I'm never going to drink. Again. I'm not going to do that." And two hours later, you're right back doing the same thing.
0: Please turn your tape. Do not rewind. Turn your tape and continue on side two. Then I stood up there, and there was a counselor
1: there, but. The miracle that had happened was that I hadn't read a book for 20 years. I knew everything. When you, when you, when you know it all, you don't need anybody. And here I was in this, in this treatment thing, and I didn't know anything. You know, these people all knew more than I did. So I became willing to listen. Became willing to listen to Marion and to, to Wayne and to all those other people that were in there, especially the people that were going to get out in a week or two, you know. Treatment centers are real fine places where the ones that have been there a little while start helping the others. That's when you, when you feel like you're getting a little bit well. But they showed a, a uh, what I started to say is like, they had me read the daily meditation there. and I couldn't read it out loud to these people. This is how bad my mind was. And the serenity prayer was up there. And I looked at that, and I thought that was a picture. I didn't know, you know, I didn't know what serenity was. I didn't know anything about the word. But I was to come to find out that it was a peace beyond understanding that I was to have later on if I just keep doing what they told me to do. Um there was a man that came in there named John D. that talked on Tuesday mornings, and I was really impressed with this man. You know, he was an insurance man, and here he came up to help people like me. And he was, I was to go to his uh, Sunday morning little deals for a long time after that because Sunday morning was my drinking time. I needed someplace to go. But all these things, I need to get out of this treatment center because it's, there it started. You know, I discovered a lot about John in there. I gave up, and I knew that, you know, they, I found out what the solution was. You know, I thought, what if he do with an alcoholic? You know, they took, said the second step, you come to believe with God higher yourself and restore you to sanity. You know, and, and it was like a light came on. Is that all there is? I remembered the God that had helped me back in all these other things, you know, and all I knew that I, if I'd get right with God, this would work for me too. So I got out of this thing, and the last day, <clears throat> the coin services a, was, a, was a thing that, you know, just, it tore me up to have to leave that place. Uh, I don't know if it's fear that, that I wasn't wasn't gonna make it, but mainly it was because I'd found something there. And I told these people at that time, you know, today I felt like I had a choice. But on a Friday night I left there and I came here. On a Friday night meeting and I sat back in that corner and I was amazed. Somebody like myself was staying up here telling about their life story. And I, I'd been to some A meetings, but you know, I looked at this place, it was the biggest place I ever been in and I said, you know, I'll never do that. That was the first thing that came to my mind. <laughs> But I came to find out that you'll do anything. If you want to stay sober, but then uh, oh, there's so many things. You know, I have a sponsor that that asked me real close. You know, how you really feeling one night? And I said, well, I feel real good, except you know, I still have that fear inside, fear of my insanity. You know, i know a lot of. I don't want to drink, but I know John, and I just might be drinking and not want to. And that, you know, he said, well, you know, way way this works is if you have faith that. God will do this for you. And if you ask him in the morning and thank him at night, if you don't want to drink, he's not going to let you drink. You know, and it was amazing how uh, a little confidence of someone telling you that, I haven't had to worry about doing that because I do what I what he would said to do. I ask God in the morning to keep me sober. And they taught me to, in treatment center there that I had to change a lot of things about everything in my life, you know, change my attitudes on, on what was important, put sobriety first. Uh, all those things that, you know, I had a farm, that I'd never gone out there sober, and I so I just said, well, I just can't go out that farm. But about six weeks later, I was able to take some Pepsi-Colas out there and get on that tractor and, and not want to drink. You know, all these little miracles happen, the things you, you know you can't do yourself, yet God was doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. But the the, the uh, first October, the first A conference I went to, was at uh, Amarillo, Texas, and I met a little doctor there named Conway H. And he took the time to come by and talk to me, you know, and that made me feel like something special that, you know, that this is the man that, I, when he told his story, you know, I told that you better listen real good because this is more than you'll ever hear from me about the way I really felt. But that man gave me a little invitation to come to Atlanta to a, 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 a conference on alcohol and drug abuse. And I didn't think at that time I'd go to that, but when the time came, I, I, something told me I needed to go to that thing, so I got on airplanes, and I'd seen this crazy cowboy around this club a little bit on Saturday mornings, but uh, he was on the same plane with me. And we get to Atlanta, and here he was, you know, and Daryl <laughs> and Paul and I had uh, five days of real good getting to know each other. And, uh, you know, that has happened to me at about every conference I've gone to since then, and I, I've been making two or three of those a year, uh, mainly for, it's my vacation, uh, mainly because I want to know more about this disease, mainly so I can help others if the, if the time comes. But uh, things came around on my first day of your birthday. You know, I'm an alcoholic. Golly, here it is. First year. Well, the first thing that happened was about a week before my birthday, somebody volunteered my services, and I stood up here for 30 minutes. You know, I, I don't know how I got through that because it's rough enough getting up here again tonight. But what it, does for, it did for me was to give me a little self confidence and also. To show me that, you know how far I've come that it's going to be all right and then uh, we had a picnic uh, we had about five or six at that time now Reno only had June birthday so we had a group picnic and the next year we was to have another one of those and uh, you know I, I ran around uh, I went to the short grass and went to their birthday party for me there I went to El Reno and went to the birthday party for me there and I come up here on Saturday morning and got a coin you know Man, I eat up these a eh, birthdays, eh? But uh, that's what it's all about, you know. It does a lot for me, but it does for some other people. You know, there's new people here tonight that been sober a week or ten days, and they wonder if this thing's gonna work for them. Uh, but the the way it, the reason I know it, it was gonna work for me because I saw these other people that were sober, and they took the time to tell me, you know, how how it happened. Also, <clears throat> Gilbert gave me a pat on the back, but. You know, I've done a little work in SAA, but the only reason I've done it is a selfish program. Uh, I tried to repay my sponsor early on. You know, I am ai I can't stand having everybody help me without me trying to repay. And he explained to me that the way you repay this is you go help somebody else. So, you know, I, I have a debt of gratitude that I, I can never help enough people for what has been given to me. So, I, for oh, two or two and a half years, while I was at the care unit, I noticed that the people that came in there and talked to us were the same people that were sober a year later. So when they asked the Alumni group for somebody to come and bring a meeting on Thursday night, I kind of took it upon myself to be there on Friday night. Me. So I did that for a couple of years. And, you know, that was the best thing that ever happened to me. Also, I got to know those people there. My job was such that I could run by in the morning and see them. And, uh, you know, they all thought that I was helping them, but I remembered what Marion had done for me. And uh, this is this is the selfish program, like I said, because I want to have those good feelings. Um, all this, you know, it's they say keep coming back. I was I went to the Kelly Club yesterday at noon. <clears throat> Things just happen, I think, every day for me that just keep m- making me more grateful and reminding me where I came from. But I had a appointment in, in a situation that I I knew was going to be a little stressful, so. Uh, I, I left a little early I really was going to go by church and it was locked up so I went up to Kelly Club but what I did when I parked there I remember sitting there one of the first nights and coming out of that meeting was 120 degrees and feeling sorry for myself and how did I get here and oh poor me you know and some lady came bouncing out of that out of Kelly Club after the speaker's thing you know and we were waiting for a taxi to haul us back to the hospital she says keep coming back you will get better uh, oh my god, you know, this lady doesn't know how bad it is you know? <laughs> but see, I can remember that yesterday mm. noon because it has gotten so much better You know those promises, uh, if I had the time I'd read them, but that big book had been laying around my house for six or eight months, I didn't read it You know, that said alcoholic on it, even when I got that treatment center when I woke up and looked next to me, there was that big book I didn't read it, I was waiting to see what was going to happen but I went to a meeting about the second or third night, and another little man was there who used to work with his uncle. I just about forgot about it. His uncle had encouraged me to go to, to uh, veterinary school, was an alcoholic, and I'd watch him come back home, and grandmother would help him get back on his feet. And, but he ended up dying alone, by himself. I didn't find him for a few days. And, uh, you know, they say that no alcoholic's death is wasted because uh, somewhere down the line somebody will reap a benefit from that. But when I went to this meeting, here was Luther. And Luther, I still see Luther on Wednesdays down the intergroup. Luther had worked with my uncle and he, he remembered me from the stockyards. And we got to talking about my you know, what had happened to my uncle and and he was so damn glad to see me, you know, it's like the people I am today, the people I know that finally get here, you know. And it's that good feeling. So, you know, but somebody read those promises at that meeting. And man, I made it back to my room and got that book out. I had never heard anything like that before in my life. Man, that's what I was looking for, you know. And I read, and that's that's what got me start reading that book. So if you don't haven't read that blue book called Alcoholics Anonymous, start on page eighty three on the bottom and read that first. And if that doesn't get you interested, then you go to the front page. The front page on that thing will be blank, unless it's stamped a uh, men's group one two three. <laughs> we have uh, given away a few thousand of those, but it doesn't make any difference. It was blank. But a man told me that that uh, he'd gotten sober in El Reno. He was in. in uh, Tulsa at a conference he said the most important page in that big book is the first page is blank that's to tell you you don't know anything if you think you know anything you're not going to read the rest of the book and you're not going to believe it you're going to argue about it and by the time I got to that care unit I knew I didn't know anything I'd laid on that bed it's the first time I'd ever been in a hospital in my life that hit on crash and all those other things that happened to me and you know I'd never been hurt physically enough to require a hospital I should have been there a couple times but I hadn't so that's why, you know, that's what that book did. And getting back to that treatment thing, there's there's a little thing called Footprints. And this is where I think I, I really surrendered. They read that thing to me. And it talks about a man walking with God. And God shows him all the things that happened in his life. You know, I visualized everything. I had like an instant replay of my whole life when they were reading this thing. And then it says, during the worst times of your life, there's only one set of footprints. And the man said, Lord, well, where were you when I needed you? He said, "Boys, that's when I was carrying you, you know. And I just broke down and cried. It's the first time I probably cried in 25 years. Because here I found that, you know, God had been carrying me. Guys like George had been driving me around. A lot of other people had been doing things for me. And I, you know, I, I had no right to even be alive. I was willing to give up my life. And the third step says we turn over our will and make the decision to turn over our will in our life to care of God. But so my will, it was that was... When he said when he said those things, you know, things just they, they just fit into place. My will had been to drink, live, and do what I'd been doing, and I knew that if, you know if I wasn't going to turn that over to God, and I wanted to go back and do those same things. I, nothing was going to change, and that also included my attitude on everything else in life. That egomaniac over there looking at, at his city, you know, and all those other crazy things. The, uh, all the wealth that I thought was mine. You know, I come to find out that God removed a lot of things I couldn't handle. And when I, found, when I took it that way, I didn't have to worry about the things I had lost. Hell, they weren't mine anyway, you know. But another thing that happened in there that there was a movie about a man that, had, just like mine, you know, had a family. They show this thing, mainly to make you get honest. And it ended up this guy—they were fighting at home, and all the things went off the alcoholic. But this guy, had ended up with a funeral, and they had yellow roses on the casket. And all at once, I remembered my wife had gone down two days before I'd gotten that care unit and made arrangements for my burial and picked out yellow roses. She told me, and, you know, I said, "Oh my God, they, they made this movie of me, you know." But it took what it took, you know. I did. They—they they gave us a little lecture about the prodigal son, and you know. That, that was me. Done, that's the way I was. And here I was back, back trying to get God to say, you know, take me back. Just leave me anywhere alive. I don't care where I am. I don't have to have everything back or anything back. Just keep me alive so I can be alive, you know. I read a little thing yesterday or a few days ago. It said that for years I prayed for God to give me things so I could enjoy life. And that was what I'd been doing. And then all at once it says God gave me life so that I could enjoy things. And that's what happened. The second chance. I used to laugh at people, and they said they were born again. You know, uh, they don't. To. But that's what happens. That's what I told you when we started out here. You know, that's what Easter's all about—the rebirth, the 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 faith that there's a new life. It All's not gone. You know, the last, the darkest moments of my life were the were the best. I heard these people say they're grateful alcoholics. Marion says it real deep, you know. And I thought, God, they're really sick. Who wants to be grateful? I've looked down on alcoholics all my life, you know. I worked in my dad's bar. I knew the people that lost their farms. Kids didn't have shoes. And the wives called all the time, you know. And here they say they're grateful they're an alcoholic. But after about a year, I could say I was grateful that I was an alcoholic because without it, I'd have never found how to live. There's bumper stickers people have on their cars that says "I found it." I don't think half of them know what they what it says, you know. Everyone in AA that's sober ought to have one that says "I found it." Not only have they found sobriety and serenity and surrender, but they found a God that'll work for them, that's their friend, you know. It's time to leave, it. I, I just do what any alcoholic's supposed to do. That's get up in the morning and thank God for another day. You know, I've had almost coming on six years of free days given to me for, by God from that time that I was willing to give my life up, and that's, you know, it was easy to give my life back to God because it wasn't mine anyway, but I enjoy these days to the fullest. I read those little books in the morning to remind me I'm an alcoholic and I can't do it by myself. I head to work and I watch the sun come up or see the stars or talk to God and say, You know, it's a great day. Thank you for making one just for John. I'm still selfish because I like to enjoy my days. But then I go and, and I go to a meeting if I can. And I'm glad there's big meetings up in the sky. You know, I got to go to that Montreal deal. And that was a, it was worth it, uh, the whole deal. Uh, for those that weren't there, you ought to just get a, a tape of just the roar of the people or see it somewhere if you can. There's somebody around here that has that videotape. But I'll uh, hope that someone tonight heard something that may help them. If nothing else, uh, you know, I told the man here tonight, (laughs) if he gets finished hearing me, he'll say if that drunk can do it, anybody can. So I'm glad to be here tonight, sober, and enjoyed it, and uh, thank you all, and thank God. Thank you.
0: Uh, John and I have known one another for a lot of years, and, uh, you know, until we share our inner feelings, we really don't know one another, I, I respect you, and I admire you. Uh, uh, there are no dues or fees, but at this time, we will uh, have the baskets... Uh, Ed uh, A has made a tape of this talk tonight. If anyone would like to have a copy of it, why? So be it. <laughs> Remember what you heard, not who you saw. Anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all of our traditions. Every man is placed principal of, the of the four personalities. We ask that you please respect the identity of fellow members in public and in their place of business. <laughs> Please take your cups and your ashtrays the rear when we get done here. That uh that Wednesday night group's a pretty good group, isn't it? Did you go last week? Didn't you? Drinking a little wine. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh one time uh, uh I had some just a minute to tell you this little story uh John Robz he was a damn good man, that's why I got to be an alcoholic. I know why I started drinking he just everybody wanted him he was he was good at his profession, but I had this sick calf out in the, he died, didn't he who your image uh uh because of a, it's a story within itself because of a uh action on my part because i was doing i was doing some drinking you better believe and i i couldn't believe that i would made this mistake you know an alcoholic such as myself don't make mistakes it's just and uh, well, this calf had died of a sickness and I, I wouldn't accept john's diagnosis of the thing and i said well we'll go kept the calf open, you know. We posted it, didn't we? Isn't that what we call that? We posted this calf. You, uh, we, uh... What do you call that? Yeah, but the, in, the nice people, you don't say that. Autopsy. That's what the hell we did. We performed an autopsy. And, uh, it got down to the fact that the... that the calf had died... <laughs> from this sickness that John had told me it had, and he was right, and I cried. (laughs) But to think back, that was 25 years ago, and to think that, you know, tonight, that we'd be be sharing this podium after having gone through the hell, because I identify closely with John all the way. We we, we both, both took a hell of a beating from alcohol. But to be up here and to be able to share with you folks is... It's a miracle, and I'm glad you all were here, and uh, one thing I heard just before the meeting started is one of our, well, uh, I guess he's one of our oldest living members, is in the hospital quite ill, Roy S., and uh, when we say our little prayer tonight, if you would, by kind of keep Roy in your thoughts, if you would, let's stand and say the Lord's Prayer. (laughs) our heart, our heart,